Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. We are finishing up our series, as you see on Twisted, and uh, this morning we actually come to a story that in the New Testament is, is really, it's really a, not only a powerful story, but it's quite sad. Um, when you, if you were looking at the text, as Jason was reading, you'll see that it's really a desperate situation. Uh, the whole scene that we see here. We have a desperate father. We have a demon-possessed son. We have a group of nine weak and largely helpless disciples uh, who failed miserably in the task that they had in front of them. We have a distressed Savior uh, who has come to rebuke them for their lack of faith. So we just got a lot of problems in this passage. But it ends well. Um, and it's a story that we need to hear Because in it, we learn many lessons about Christ's expectations for us. And I've been praying for our church that God would do a work uh, in us as a body over the next several weeks. We're about to enter into a new series of sermons that we are going to be preaching um, expositionally through Hebrews chapter 11 on the subject of faith. And we're going to take up each and every hero, if you will, of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to preach that. And our prayer for this church is that God would be doing a work in us, that we would be a people that both believe and begin to attempt great things for God. But if we're going to get there, then we need some teaching on these foundational issues. In fact, this text is interesting because it not only ends the Twisted series, but in some ways it's it's a good preface for where we're headed in the next several weeks. And My burden for us as a church is that we grow more and more dependent upon God in every facet of our life together. And here's why I say that, because I'm convinced, and I've said this before, but I'm I'm really convinced. I mean, traveling overseas gets you to this place. I'm convinced that America is one of the hardest places to be a Christian. I think this is a hard place. It's harder, I think, in in many respects than living in uh, a third world country, um, because this place is is filled with all kinds of comforts and entertainments. And what that does is it dulls our senses spiritually. I mean, we're, we're running around like crazy. We're so busy. And there's all these entertainments just constantly just hitting us. And so our senses get dulled. But if you're in a third world environment, you're constantly under duress, under persecution. You're under, you're under the gun. You're, you're, you're next to, to somebody who's violent or hostile, who literally hates your guts, who hates Christianity. And, and, and Christians are huddling together and they're praying, oh God, save us from this. Protect us. They're praying for the gospel to spread. They're praying for great things to happen. But see, they're under pressure. And when you're under pressure, you pursue God. But when you're comfortable and you're free and there's not much problems that you face, well, I mean, hey, you start forgetting God. You start forgetting the the things that he has called us to. And so this is one of the hardest places to live. And and so this country is, is something that we have to learn how to live here. See, if you can live here as a Christian, you can go anywhere. Everybody's afraid to send their kids to a, to a place like Africa, like the Horn of Africa. But look, I mean, this is a dangerous place to raise your kids. See, so we, we, we just have our paradigms kind of backwards on some of these matters. And, and so I'm convinced that a truly spiritual church 
is a church. I mean, it's hard to have one of these in America, but a spiritual church is a church that's not driven by secular, worldly, materialistic concerns, but it's filled with believers who hunger for God. I mean, I'm talking about a church that is marked by a pursuit of God through extraordinary prayer and worship. A church that attempts great things for God, believes God for great things, moves after it, attempts them for his glory. It's just so easy. I mean, I feel it in my own flesh to remain status quo. It's so easy to just show up, to go through the motions, to, to do ministry, to go to the event, to bring the kids, to sing a few songs, to preach a sermon or two, to listen to God's word preached, but then to go home. And if we're not careful, pastors included, will coast. When I'm speaking, I love to say this, from the authority of personal failure. I, I can coast. I coast. I, I begin to get lazy spiritually. Slip into neutral and let life just kind of hit me. And I lose intentionality and purpose and discipline and drive and vision. And what you end up doing is just sitting passively and letting life just hit you. And then you respond to that accordingly. Instead of grabbing the bull by the horn and saying, we're going somewhere intentional with vision to do something for the sake of God and his glory. But when we think about the kind of life that we want to lead... For God's glory, it helps to kind of snap us out of this. When we begin to dream what we would like to accomplish for Christ's sake, that helps us. And so we need constant refocusing on these matters. And and here's what that means for us. As one of your pastors, I feel a great responsibility in calling before God not to let us coast. I mean, I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ someday and give an account for my leadership as a pastor. And I take that seriously. And, and so I have a deep burden in my heart to do everything I can to continue to encourage us into a deeper, more spiritual walk with God. And that's why I want to constantly be calling us to greater faith, to intensified worship and prayer and gospel intentionality. Because I think these are the things that are going to get us out of a rut that we so often find ourselves in. So for the next several weeks, as I said, we're going to take up this subject of faith and our prayers that God will lead us into a deeper walk in communion with him. So before you even get into Matthew 17, why don't we just bow our heads for a moment and let's pray and let's ask God to help us. So Father, I just pray that you would give, give us a greater depth of insight and a spirit of understanding. And we have just been reminded of the power of your word. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, it would penetrate our hearts and help us learn this discipline of prayer and the things that you will set before us today about faith and its relationship, especially to prayer. And so we pray that you will reach even more deeply into our lives and teach us so that we can learn how to live in a way that is more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we looked at John chapter 14 and the words of Jesus, I will do whatever you ask in my name. And we talked about three things. We talked about the condition of that promise in Jesus' name. We talked about the purpose for the promise so that the Father may be glorified. And we talked about the power of the promise, which is, is an awesome promise. I will do whatever you ask. And that's powerful. And this week, I want to look at another passage where Jesus makes an incredible statement. Namely... If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. 
Now, those are amazing words. Sometimes you read Jesus and you say, how can he say that with credibility? I mean, it's just almost, it's, the word incredible means I can't believe it. It's like too good to be true. What, what's going on? And there's two tendencies we have when we come to a text like this. We grab it and we just, we just, we just go crazy with it and get into all kinds of goofy stuff. Or we just strip it of all of its value and all of its real promise and we twist it as conservatives to say something, to say basically nothing anymore. And so we don't want to be guilty of either one of those things. We want to look at what Jesus says here and, and apply it to our life in a way that is meaningful. And certainly these words are misused. And I don't really want to spend much time on the misuse of this text this morning because really if you just refer to the, the first half of last week's sermon where I talked about the word of faith movement. I mean that's really all you need to know about how this text is misused. It's the same thing. It's the same issue. It's the same problem. Really what it is, is for those who weren't here last week, uh, people end up running wild with these words of Jesus and end up buying into some form of the prosperity gospel, which says I can have whatever I want as long as I claim it in Jesus name. Or in this case, as long as I have enough faith. But, but I mean, the issue is it's just, it's all about the flesh. I can have it and whatever I want and I'm going after it. And it's just kind of selfish motivation. That's certainly not what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is not saying if you have just enough faith, you can literally say to Mount Everest, move. And, and, and sort of these tectonic plates begin to shift and, you know, and, and, and Mount Everest moves to another place. I mean, clearly this is a figure of speech. And it's intended to teach his disciples a powerful lesson that God is powerful. And when we trust him with a true heart of faith, no matter how small, that faith is we can do things for his glory that seem totally insurmountable. But hear me, our focus and our drive must always be on God's glory and the expansion of his kingdom. Large faith and bold praying exist for God's glory and his purposes, not for selfish gain. And I trust that we made that clear last week. So let's shift gears. Matthew 17 here is another rousing text. And again, it's designed to create a craving in our hearts for more intensified praying and for greater faith. But in order to get there, we have to endure a little bit of a negative example. We got to put up with what we see is the failure of the disciples and how Jesus corrected them. Like I said, it's negative. It's sad. And I'm almost halfway through this story. And to do that, I want to just see three things. I want to see this dark and demonic world in verses 14 through 16. I want you to notice a distressed Savior in 17 and 18. And then I want to show you a diagnosis for the disciples' spiritual ineffectiveness. Why? The question is, why are they ineffective? Well, so we'll look at those three things, okay? Here's the context. The disciples, Peter and James and John have just come down, if you read the beginning of chapter 17, they've just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And they've just seen what Paul calls later on in the New Testament, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's what they've just beheld. They've just watched Jesus conversing with Moses and talking with Moses about the Exodus. What an incredible front row seat that would have been as Jesus and Moses discussed redemption and 
at the Exodus. And they've just come down from that. And right after this euphoric experience, they find themselves in the midst of a vile and wicked scene. The focus here is on a demon-possessed boy. And beside him is a crowd of thrill-seekers and scribes who are arguing with the disciples and mocking the disciples, presumably for their lack of ability to cast out the demon. And Jesus and James and John walk upon this scene. There's already nine disciples down there. And Jesus, James, and John walk upon this scene. And they're watching scribes attacking these nine disciples. And they're fighting and arguing. And there's this crazy kid who's just going nuts down there. And there's a bunch of thrill seekers waiting to see what's going to happen. And Jesus shows up. And it's, I mean, this is a big scene. And on top of all this, you have a broken and devastated father who's just at, at, his, at his wit's end. What am I going to do about this son of mine? So he sees this dark and demonic world. In verse 14, the father kneels before Jesus. Now that's kind of strange because men don't typically beg other men for mercy. I mean, that's just not in the male psyche. To get down on your knee and say to another man, help me. But this man is desperate and he begs Jesus saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. Think about that request. Think about those words to have mercy. In the Bible, when we come across those words, have mercy, to show mercy, it does not mean to merely feel compassion or pity for someone, but it's allowing that feeling of pity to actually move a person to action so that they do something to, to relieve the suffering. That's, that's what it means. Having mercy is more than a feeling. It's, it's a plan to bring a solution to the problem. And this is my struggle every time I go to India. I'm mean, looking at mass crowds of people, people with polio, all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. And, and you, you just feel like, man, I just want to help. I want to serve. I want to do something. And, and, and I feel compassion for so many people, but I'm unable to do much of anything to alleviate the problem. I, mean, I just look at it and I think, what can I do? But here's the amazing thing about God. When God shows mercy, he's not just feeling pity on us for our condition, but his pity moves him to action so that he solves our greatest dilemma. That's what it does. And so... As this father falls on his knees and begins to describe his son's affliction, in verse 15, we read that he's an epileptic. And not only this, but check this out. Mark adds that he was demon-possessed. In fact, his demon possession led him to his epilepsy. Now, if you don't have a category, a theological category in your mind right now for a physical illness coming from a demon, then you should. Because it's right here. In fact, in Mark, it's even clearer. Mark chapter 9. It's, it's obvious that it comes as a result of demonic activity. Now, that's not to say that all forms of physical illness are a result of demonic activity, to be sure. But some are. And some can be. And that's clearly taught in the New Testament. Now, this is not a mild case of epilepsy. I mean, surely, if, if a demon is creating it, and manifesting himself in this way is not going to be a mild case. Not, not going to be like, go down to the doctor and pop a pill and you're better. This is sick. There's something inside this kid that is really sick. 
And Mark adds the fact that the child could not speak or hear. So you got an epileptic kid. He can't speak. He can't hear. So he's deaf and he's mute. And moreover, Matthew says that he would often fall into both fire and water. And he's going to these seizures. And of course, in that ancient Near Eastern world, there's lots of open fires. There's lots of pools and bodies of water. And so if he goes into one of these seizures next to a fire, chances of him rolling into it are fairly likely. And he said he would often fall into water and fire. Kid must have been burned, scarred, miserably, terribly. This is a child now we're talking about. Okay? And as I said, Mark makes clear that that's not just a physical problem. It came from a demon. He says, Mark says, he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Luke says that the demon throws him down. And, and Mark says that he convulses and wallows in the dirt and foams at the mouth. And then, to make matters worse, Mark adds that the demon was foul and unclean, which means the boy would have been lewd and licentious and totally out of control. Think about one of your small boys, probably under 10, lewd and licentious and out of control, throwing himself in fire. This is a situation that we, I mean, you can, <laughs> I love, I love to watch Jesus walk on a scene like this because as human beings, we look at this and we say, there's nothing we can do for that. We just run. I mean, if I walked up to that scene, I'd run. I don't want to be near that kid. That's scary stuff. But Jesus walks up to that scene and this is meant to teach us a vivid lesson about sin. So let, let me just pause. Let's, we're watching the scene. Let me, let's press pause for a minute. And let's think about what we're looking at. You say, well, how does a person get a demon in him like that? Well, listen, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to do anything. You just have to exist. I mean, you don't have to do anything. The prince of the power of the air rules you and he can dispatch and allow his demons to do anything that they want to you. And here's the scary thing. You can't do anything to resist it. It's only the common grace of God that unbelievers are not eaten up, literally eaten up with demonic activity. It's God's mercy. But you can't prevent it if you're not a Christian. That's what's so scary. So if you're not a Christian this morning, may I just appeal to your own self-interest? Would it not be better for you to be reconciled to God this morning? Only in Christ can we find peace and safety and protection. I mean, there's promises held out for Christians in the New Testament. 1 John 5, 18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not even touch him. That's an awesome promise. Jesus protects us. So if you're not a Christian this morning, you know, turn to him today. If you need help doing that, I mean, I'll be up here after the service with other pastors at the doors. Please come and, and talk to us. We, we would love to help you do that. That's, I mean, the most important matter for you this morning. Well, in the second place, I want you to notice the distress in the Savior's heart. 
uh, verse 16. This is heartbreaking. Verse 16 says, I brought him, the Father speaking, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Well, we see in these verses the ineffectiveness of the disciples. They have no power. Now, does that seem strange to you? That the disciples have no power? It should. It should seem strange to you because in Matthew 10, we read that, and Jesus gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He's already given them power to do that. And again, in verse 8, Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and listen, cast out demons. He's already told them that. So the disciples had been given authority and power to do this. In fact, they've already been doing it. We know that because Mark 6, 13 says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then Luke adds that the father comes to them here, these nine guys, and he pleads with the disciples to do it, and they can't. They can't. Why? What's missing? Well, very simply, what's missing is that they lost sight of their faith in Christ, and they did not appropriate his power and help through prayer. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, as the father approaches, he's lost faith in the disciples to help or do anything. And when Jesus hears this, that his disciples were unable to do the very thing he both commanded them to do and equipped them to do, what happens to Jesus? He goes right into this word. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, can't you feel the emotion here in Jesus? We don't get to see this kind of this level of emotion in Jesus too often. He's frustrated. How long? How long? How long will I bear with you? You can really sense his pain and his disappointment. The question is, to whom is Jesus speaking? Well, I, first of all, I think he's making a general statement. But surely he's generalizing off the specific And who are the ones not exercising faith? Faithless and twisted generation. Who are the ones not exercising faith? It's the disciples. So what he's really doing in short is he's comparing the disciples with a faithless and twisted generation. Now that's bad news. When Jesus compares us to the world, that's bad news for us. But that's true of us sometimes, isn't it? Isn't it true? Jesus says, you're just like the world. And there's a lesson in that for us. People are looking for hope in the midst of a broken world. And we know that Christ is that only hope. But so often people are tripping over the church to get to Christ. And what I mean is this, is that Christians create a stumbling block for people who are expecting to see in us the power of God at work in us. 
But instead, what they see looks exactly like themselves. No power, worldly, secular, in love of the world, entertainment driven. And they don't see, they just don't see anything. Like you're a fake. I come into church and, and it's like, what in the world? There's no power there. It's, it's like, a, it's either a show or some kind of like trying to be cool or it's just, it's, it's, it's just like superficial and hey, how you doing? And blah, blah, blah. And it's not, not real. There's no power. There's no demonstration of the spirit. There's no fire from heaven. There's no authority. There's no power. Oh, the evangelical church in America is such a wreck. And that's why I'm pleading with you, dear people. I'm pleading with you. We will not let us not be that church. We cannot. We have those tendencies. We do that. We fall prey to that. And I'm calling us out of that. I'm calling us into something that is lasting and real. And so when, when the church looks like the world, it loses its testimony and credibility with unbelievers. God help us. So Jesus rebukes his disciples for their faithlessness. And note this, that Jesus may be angry. He is here, righteous anger, but he's never unkind. And nor does, he, nor does his displeasure keep him from actually showing mercy. He's displeased. I mean, he could have just walked away and said, Oh, you faithless and twisted generation, and then bolted. But he doesn't do that, does he? He's got an agenda And here's his agenda. There's a sick kid right in front of us. Isn't your heart moved for this? And he's saying, he's saying, we're not leaving here until we fix this. You faithless and twisted generation. I give you the power. I give you the ability to do this. I even command you to do this. And you don't do it. And so what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to do it myself. Even though I've been teaching you in the school of Jesus for years and you've still not gotten to that point. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to heal this kid because he needs help. And this poor father is sitting in front of you and you should have been able to help him. And so Jesus says, bring him here to me. He's so compassionate. Jesus rebukes the demon and it's over like that. The child is cured. Suddenly he could speak. He could hear. He could think. No more convulsions. No more foaming at the mouth. And by the way, I love this. Luke adds a footnote. Luke says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, Peter, James, and John got to see the majesty of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration hours before the other disciples might have been wondering, well, why didn't we get to see that? And Jesus says, I've got my own demonstration for you. And he heals this boy. And Luke says, they were astonished by the majesty of God. Now, this should be an encouragement for parents to bring their children before Christ. If your children are still under the grip of the devil... I know I'm speaking to some of you today. Your children are still under the grip of the devil. Jesus is able and compassionate to deliver them. But don't just bring them to Christ in prayer. You bring the word of Christ to them. 
And don't give, give up. Don't grow weary in doing that. God's word brought home to a sinner's heart will ruin Satan's power. It's sharp. Sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Preach, preach, preach that word to your children. Don't worry about, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, you know, to ruin my relationship with them. You know, it's real sensitive. We don't have time to be sensitive. <laughs> I'm not saying be an idiot. I'm not saying be unloving. I'm just saying get some courage and bring the word of Christ to your children. So we see that Christ endures our unbelief and he meets our deepest needs. But it doesn't stop there. He empowers our ministry which leads to our last point. And with this, I want to spend the rest of our time. This is where it gets really practical for us. We see here the diagnosis for the disciples' spiritual ineffectiveness. See, because that's where I want to spend time. Because if you're like me, you're sitting there asking, okay, well, why, didn't, why couldn't the disciples do what they're supposed to do? If they had the power at their disposal and Jesus commanded them to do it, what is causing the spiritual ineffectiveness? Because... I'm sitting here saying, I feel just like that. I feel like so often there's a lack of power, a lack of effectiveness, and I want to know what is the root cause. Like, what do I need to change? What do I need to do differently? What needs to happen for the power of God to be at work in and through my life? And that's a huge question for me. And that's, that's what keeps me up at night, is questions like that. What, is, what, what do we need to do? What are we doing wrong? How do we fix this? What's the cause? So Jesus gives a diagnosis. Now, we don't know everything that's going on in the mind and motives of these disciples, but due to their previous success, it's likely that they've concluded that divine power was kind of just a given for them. I mean, it says they were casting out many demons. They were doing this all the time. So maybe they just grew callous to it. And they started doing it without reliance on God, without prayer, without dependence. Just, and pride must have played a role. And we know that because Luke 10 says that they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus rebukes them for that. So you got pride at work. You probably got a mechanical sort of just dullness and just, just ministry, just whatever. And, it's, and you're just going through the motions. But here's what we know from the text itself. Verse 19 says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Now note that. They're already well embarrassed at this point. And so they're not going to ask Jesus, Why could we not cast him out in front of the scribes? I mean, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed by their failures. They're embarrassed by their sins. And they say, let's just let's get him alone and ask him privately. Teacher, privately say to Jesus, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. And then Mark adds these words from Jesus. This kind can only come out by prayer. And just so you know, the word fasting is an addition to the text. It's probably not in the original so prayer is really only... In fact, the word fasting didn't come in until the Middle Ages, which is probably due to some monk in a monastery thinking that the word fasting should be added to the text. This kind can only come out by prayer. So when, 
When Jesus diagnoses the problem, he tells them two things are leading to their spiritual ineffectiveness. A little faith, small faith, and a lack of prayer. Those are the issues. Now let's start with faith and make some application to our lives and our church. Uh, Presumably these disciples had begun to approach ministry, as I said, in a mechanical way. They had become dependent on their own strength instead of relying on God's power. They did not rely on on God. And it's so easy to do that. So easy to live in a way that you don't have to rely on God. I mean, I can, I can orchestrate my life in a certain way that I really don't have to kind of feel any need, any great need. So then I don't have any urge or push or motivation to rely on God. Cause Hey, I'm, you know, I've worked things out. I've arranged things in just such a way that I'm pretty much able to handle this. Thank you. And you just, and there's no reliance on God. And, and the point here is not that we need greater faith merely, but that we need to keep our eyes fixed on the object of our faith. If we want our faith to increase, we must keep our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith, which means he's able to strengthen your faith and increase your faith. He's going to bring it to perfection. He's the source of power. A little bit of faith, Jesus says, his large point is, is even the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed will be able to say to the mountain move. So a little bit of faith, a little bit of true faith in a great God will accomplish great things. In short, nothing will be impossible for people of God who believe in the power of God to accomplish the will of God. It may sound cliche, To say faith can move mountains. Because we've ruined this text. But that's what Jesus says. And that's the essence of verse 20. I love Craig Blomberg uh, who says this, his words here. I love these words. He says verse 20 provides a precious promise. Much is not accomplished for the kingdom because we simply do not believe God will adequately empower us. Or else we undertake various activities in our own strength rather than God's. That's the problem. So, of course, there's limitations to the text. We're not omnipotent. We're not God. Jesus is not saying that our faith guarantees that God will do whatever we want. God is no man's slave. But hear me. Let's not get so focused on that that we forget the promise. We can't ignore it. The reality is many things are not accomplished because of a lack of faith in our hearts. Well, here's the question. Faith in what? Not faith in faith. Faith in what? Well, it comes down to this. Faith in God's goodness and greatness. It's a confident trust that God is good and that his heart delights in hearing us and his heart delights in healing us and his heart delights in delivering us. And it's also faith in what he says. So in Luke chapter 11, do you remember these words when he said, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it's a confident trust that God is able to heal, and God is able to deliver, and God is able to show up in power, and that he's willing to give us his spirit and power, and that God is not limited by anything outside of himself. 
And when you begin to grow in that confidence that God is not limited by anything, by anything outside of himself, and you begin to commune with God in that way, your faith begins to increase and you begin to start praying some pretty crazy stuff, believing that God will do it and he's willing to do it. So here's what we need is a deep, genuine, confident faith in God that he will accomplish great things. But when I say that, I wonder how much we really understand. Because, well, let me just give you some biblical examples about faith. It was faith in God's power that caused Caleb to look at the land of Canaan with all of its giants in Numbers 13 and say this, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. That's bold. That's faith. It was faith in God's protection that allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand on the edge of a fiery furnace and say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. It was faith in God's word that enabled Daniel to survive the lion's den and it, and it says there that Daniel was taken up out of the den, den and he was not hurt in any way because he believed God. And then when we look at Hebrews 11 next week and for the next few weeks, we will see many more examples. Let me, or how about this? Let me give you a modern example. How about William Carey? For, the, for those who are missions lovers out there. How about William Carey? He had an expectation that was not rooted in his strength, but in the power of God. And so this simple shoemaker, this insignificant shoemaker, had a vision to reach the unreached in India. And even though he was mocked for his zeal, he pressed on. In fact, one guy really tried to discourage him. His name was John Ryland. And when Carey's describing his vision for India, he stands up and he says, Young man, sit down. If God be pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do so without your help or mine. Terrible statement. Absolutely terrible. Totally misguided. Here's the point. William Carey had faith. And Carey said, it was Carey who said, expect great things for God and attempt great things for God. And look what God did through his life. The Bible is in Indian languages today because of William Carey. He was the father of that movement. Oh, for faith like this. And there's so much more that could be done through the church. And in our own lives. But we simply don't believe God will do it. So what do we do? We spend our time and our effort on things that we can do in our own strength. Usually, if we can't find a way, we don't attempt it. But this is not the life of faith. Hebrews says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, let's cruise back to the text. Verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus and say, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus teaches them a great lesson. He says, because of your little faith. He says, you had weak faith. You didn't believe enough. Now, I know at this point, I I run the risk of sounding like a TBN preacher. You didn't have enough faith. You just needed more faith. You needed to have more faith. 
All right. But, but hear me, most of us run so fast in the opposite direction that we've eliminated the concept of degrees of faith from our theology altogether. That can't be right. But Jesus says that they had a problem and the problem that they have is that they have little faith. In fact, he says it four other times in Matthew. So what happened to their faith? Why, why, why did it become little? Why did it shrink? I'm sure that when the disciples first saw this boy, they attempted to heal him. I mean, it says so. And maybe they said, you know, um, mute and deaf spirit in the name of Jesus be gone. And, you know, maybe somebody said, Peter, or, or not, sorry, not Peter, but somebody else, one of the disciples, Peter's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but another disciple says, okay, in the, um, let's try this. Uh, so, uh, mute and deaf spirit in the name of Jesus, uh, flee, and nothing happens. And maybe they try it two or three times, and nothing happens. And so, they just gave up. I mean, they just bailed out. It's not working. Let's just go home. And they quit. It's like their faith just ran out. But you see, this is how little faith expresses itself. We say, as Christians, we're fond of saying that we believe God. But all along, we have the human resources and the ability to handle the situation in our own power without having to rely on God. That's not belief in God. What is that? Oh, I believe God. I believe God, you know, believe God will take care of us while you're padding your retirement fund. Well, I believe, I believe God's going to take care of us while, while you're working to secure, put the right boundaries around your life and secure yourself in just the right way so that if the economy crashes, you're safe because you bought the gold and you put it and you hid it in that safe. Well, that's not faith. That might be wisdom, but it's not faith. See, this is how little faith expresses it. We engineer our lives this way. We choose not to take risks because we don't want to give up control. But that's not faith. Faith says, I believe God without anything in my hand. I believe God in the middle of the storm. I believe God when there's nothing to eat. I believe God when no one is around to help me. I believe God in a foreign land with dangers all around. That's true faith. And so what is Jesus calling his disciples to? Two things. Greater faith and intensified prayer. Those are the two things he's calling us to. And here's the point on prayer. Okay, we talked about faith. Here's the point on prayer. When the disciples ask why they couldn't cast it out, Jesus tells them in Mark 9 that this kind only comes out through prayer. So what does he mean? Does he mean that we should... Listen carefully to this. What does he mean when he says that? Does he mean that we should pray to God and ask God to drive out the demon? Is that the problem? Well, number one, I don't think that's the problem because Jesus already told them and gave them the authority to do that. And in Mark 6, they're doing it. And in Mark 10, it tells them that he gave them the authority, the power to go and do that. So does he, does he really mean that? That we should, the problem was they just didn't ask God to drive out the demon or... Does he mean that we should pray to God for wisdom and renewed confidence in Christ and the sufficiency of his atoning death and the power of his resurrection so that we can engage a dark world and rebuke it in his name? That's a good question, and I think it's the latter. And here's why. 
when you read the New Testament, there's not a single instance of demonic deliverance by prayer. Not one in the New Testament. It always occurs in Jesus' name and by the word of command. Always. But Mark focuses on the need for prayer. Here's why prayer is important. Because it demonstrates that divine power is not under human control. Like, I can't just walk around and say, I have divine power, so bam, make that thing happen. So prayer is the point. In other words, how do, you, how do we appropriate divine power? How are we able to operate in a spirit of strength and power? And he's saying it's not under human control. It must be asked for humbly and on our face. Manifestations of the power of God come only in response to an attitude of trust and reliance upon God as expressed primarily through prayer and dependence on God. So friends, how, here's the question. How long are we willing to persist in prayer? How long will we stay on our knees and knock like the persistent widow in Luke 18 to the point of just annoyance. Please, 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 please. I implore you, I beg you, please, please. Lord, please, God, please, God, please, please. Lord, how long will we do that? Jesus concludes the parable in Luke 18 with these words. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We are dependent on the prayer of faith to see God's power at work. You know, in the New Testament, there is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, what we call the gift of faith. Sometimes it would be great to do a sermon on that. I think there's really three types of faith that are expressed in the New Testament. There's converting faith, okay? That's trust in the atoning sacrifice and death of Jesus. There is continuing faith, which is how we live every day. We exercise faith in God's provision for us, in his hope. We, we read the scriptures. He fills us with faith. And then there's charismatic faith. Don't be scared by that word. It's a Greek word. It means gift. He is, there's charismatic faith, which is the gift of faith. That occurs in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. That's a specialized form of faith. And, and it seems that right here in Luke or sorry, in Matthew 17, that's what we're dealing with here, is that gift of faith. It's something that God provides. It's not like you have it once and for all. It's like you got it, man, I was 22 years old and God gave me the gift of faith. I don't think it's like that. I think they, it comes and goes. You may be walking and ministering and doing work and ministry. You may be reading scripture. You may be pursuing God. You may be praying. And, and in a moment, God may fill you with an enlargement of heart with an unusual, strange confidence that he is about to move and act and provide and do something. And that comes upon you in a moment. And you pray a crazy, bold prayer out of nowhere. And something happens. A mountain moves. A person is healed. Something, something takes place. And then a week later, that may just be gone. And you just, you're just back to living a normal life, trying to live by faith in Christ. But then two, three months later... God may fill you with extraordinary confidence. And he's about to do something. So understand, there's different types of faith that are talked about in the New Testament. It's not like faith is not a monolithic uh, category. It's multifaceted. So here, here, here's the situation. 
Jesus is calling them to persistent prayer. The principle, I think, is clear. The disciples couldn't heal even though they had a promise. They couldn't heal even though they had available power. Why? Because they weren't depending on God in prayer. William Hendrickson, he says it this way, Faith the size of a mustard seed is the kind of trust in God which does not give up in despair. When its efforts do not meet with immediate success, it maintains its uninterrupted and vital contact with God and therefore continues to pray fervently, knowing that God at his own time and in his own way will bestow the blessing. Persistence. So what's the solution to little faith? Anybody, anybody have little faith here? What's the solution? Prayer. Prayer. It's persistent prayer and dependence on God. James says it this way. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? Avails much. Effective, fervent, passionate, continuous prayer. It gets results. And we will never know the full range of God's promises or experience the blessings or know the fullness of his rewards that he's willing to give us until we learn persistent prayer and total dependence upon God. So let me tie all this up, okay, and, and apply it to our church. What does this mean for our church? And I just have two things to say, and we're done. All right, number one. I said last week that the power of the kingdom is the experiential ministry of the Spirit of God. And without this power, and without this experience, without his influence, all of our gifts, all of our theological education, all of our strategic planning, all of our correct methodology will be lifeless and powerless. And so my desire for our church is that we will develop an unquenchable thirst and a broken dependency upon God until we conclude that if we, even if we have everything else, but if we do not have this anointing of God's holy fire upon us, then we will not influence this world for Christ. This is what it means to be a spiritual body. This is what it means to be a spiritual church. Jesus wants to form us into a spiritual people that with our mustard seed faith begin to pray and begin to seek his faith with, face with persistence until, until he comes and anoints us with power from on high. And when that begins to happen, then we will say truly nothing is impossible for us. Our faith will have increased. And finally, with our mustard seed faith, I want to call our church to move some mountains. What are those mountains, you ask? Well, several come to my mind, and they're all centered on God's kingdom and glory. Let me just, I'm just going to list them off, and I want you to think about these things and begin to pray about them. Fifth Street. We love to serve in that community. They're sweet people, and it's a part of our city that we love. But we want to see. We want to see God at work, not just here, but there powerfully doing things in families, doing things in marriages, doing things for children. <clears throat> we want to see God move, but that's not going to happen <clears throat> by being lazy and by not praying. It's not going to happen. So we must persist. We must move. How about Hispanic ministry? How in the world do you start something like that? How, how does that get started? How does, it, how does, it, how does a group of, of, of Latinos begin to come together and put themselves under God's word to hear preaching on a regular basis and get converted and see baptisms? How is that going to happen? 
Or how about gospel community vitality? All these groups that we have that, you know, you just feel like, man, sometimes it's just, I don't even know why I show up. I've, it's just, there's nothing powerful going on. It just doesn't feel like, and I've got better things to do. And, and trust me, I've had the same feelings. I've let, I lead groups and I think, man, I'm doing a terrible job of leading this thing. And I don't feel like it's taken off. And I don't feel like it has any, just, there's just a lack of something there. And I'm frustrated as a leader as I'm thinking, what am I doing wrong? How is the Spirit going to energize those things in such a way that vital community and mission begin to happen? That's a mountain. How about a church, a praying church? How does a church become a praying church when it's not a praying church? In other words, we have a few meetings, yeah, and we show up and we go through the things and we pray. But how, how does a whole culture form in a church that begins to pray? That's a mountain that has to be moved. How about a Spirit-anointed church that's utterly God-besotted? I mean, to a point where it's like you walk in and you're a visitor or a guest. You say, there, there is something powerful in that place. How does that happen? It's a mountain that has to be moved. How about the creation of new ministries that are not just clever or cute, but they're inspired by God. They're birthed out of burden and desire people's hearts. How about church planning? How's a church going to get off the ground? How about inexplicable and divine growth as a result of conversion? In other words, there's a hundred new people here in six months time. Why? Because God moved with converting force in some crazy way because, because we were moving out and praying and seeking the face of God and filled with power and preaching the gospel and hundreds of people were converted. And all of a sudden, we're like pulling down those bleachers, not because we're trying to steal sheep from other churches, but because the power of God moved and converted hundreds of people. That's a mountain. And it can be moved. Hear me, it can be moved. How about a culture of spontaneous worship? How about whole-scale church-wide renewal and revival? How about restored and revived marriages? How about repentant and God-entranced children and youth? These are mountains that can and should be moved. And if we will go after them, listen, they will be moved. I'm telling you, they will be moved. These are God-centered objectives. These are not selfish, prosperity-driven, God, give me, give me, give me. These are for his glory and his kingdom. And he's willing. The question is, are we? Are we willing? Now hear me. I'm putting the whole weight of this sermon on this last phrase, this last paragraph. Hear me. We will not get there by being status quo. That will only come through consistent prayer and communion with God. Prayer is the issue for us. It is the secret place of prayer that God will enlarge our faith. The question is, how much do we want it? How hungry are we for the experiential ministry of the Spirit, which is the power of the kingdom? And here's the last question. Are we willing to pay the price to see it? That's the question. Are we willing Only time will tell. Only time will tell. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm real hopeful. Real hopeful. Because I see God at work. And God uses sermons like this to move his people. So I'm hopeful. Let's, let's, let's buckle up for the next several weeks on faith. And let's see what God does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. This is, your word's awesome. We love it. 
So change us through it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Just before I read um, a brief passage and dismiss us with God's blessing and benediction, just want to remind any visitors that if you need spiritual help and encouragement, and it would just be helpful to talk to a pastor, to maybe slip off for a moment and pray, we would be absolutely delighted to, to do that. That is our privilege. One pastor is down. He's listening and watching now. He can pray from his home. Pastor Keith is going to be at the door immediately after the service. Pastor Jonathan will be here. I will also be up front. I'm to take a picture of certain people that understand why they're going to be photographed. But then I would be willing and helpful. If you want to call us during the week and meet for an hour and just talk and open the Word of God and pray, that's why we're here. That's our greatest desire and privilege. We want to We want to bless you. Remember that we do have community groups meeting right now after this service, some of them just across the hall. And you're welcome to stay. We'd love to have you stay and eat with us. Others are meeting in homes nearby. So if if you have any interest in that, please um, let us know and and be our guest. Now, as I read this benediction, think about what we've just been challenged about the enlargement of our faith through prayer, but also in prayer. These are the words of the apostle to the Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews said, Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant. May that God of peace, says the writer, equip you with all that is good. More faith is good. More prayer is good. May that God equip you with all that is good, to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. God bless you, and we are dismissed.